Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we seek your wisdom. We listen to the words of Scripture, but we're listening for your word to speak through them. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Carl Barber saved me some trouble and the church expense. He gave me a book that had been recommended to me by others, and I knew I needed to read it. The book by Peter Enns has a simple title, How the Bible Actually Works, and a long and playful subtitle in which I explain how an ancient, ambiguous, diverse book leads us to wisdom rather than answers and why that's good news. Enns is a professor of biblical literature teaching at Eastern University, and he's the co-host of the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Enns is playful not only with his title, but also throughout the book. At one point, for instance, Enns offers a timeline to help us get some perspective on just how much time passes, how much changes in the span of the Bible and since then. He says, reflect on how much has changed in the 3,000 years since King David ruled and the Yankees beat the Mets in the World Series. He then asks us to imagine how much more will change between now and 3,000 years from now when the Rolling Stones will finally break up. (laughs) Do you normally read footnotes? You'd read his. His footnote might tell you what footnotes normally do, such as explain why God is sometimes called Yahweh and how Hanukkah came about. But he'll also point out when he's being sarcastic If you don't know, he'll beg not to be placed in a home because of something that he just said, or he'll refuse to explain what process theology is all about because that's above his pay grade. Enns is playful because he did not write this book for other scholars, and he did not write this book for ministers. He wrote it for normal people. I'm trying to forgive him for that. He wrote it for Christian people and non-Christian people, anyone who might wonder how the Bible can have a say in their lives when it can be so ancient and confusing and inconsistent. And he thinks that he can help normal people. He certainly helped this preacher, who thinks he's normal, write the sermon. I'm still trying to process what he said. Before I share his insights, listen for wisdom in the reading of the verses that serve as the prologue to the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For learning about wisdom and instruction. For understanding words of insight. For gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. To teach shrewdness to the simple knowledge and prudence to the young, 
Let the wise too hear and gain in learning and the discerning acquire skill to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word of the Lord. You may know this already, but there are basically three groups of literature in the Old Testament. There's the Torah, sometimes called the law or the writings of Moses. There is the prophets. And then there is the writings, sometimes called the wisdom literature. At the seminary I attended, I would say at all the mainline seminaries, one easily gets the feeling that these three can be ranked in order of importance. Here's the ranking expressed in a crude and clunky way. First priority goes to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It is, after all, the books of, thus saith the Lord, the revealed law of God. So if you want to know the right thing to do in your life, it's only natural to go to the books of the Bible that tell you the stories about who you are and then give you the, the big commands and the many rules of instruction. Second in priority comes the prophets, which play off of the Torah. The prophets, after all, are about accountability. They constantly remind those who listened to the Torah that it had promises of blessing for obedience and warnings of consequences for disobedience. The prophets looked at how the people of Israel, especially the rich, powerful, and privileged of Israel, and especially the king of Israel, measure up to what the Torah expects of them. And then third in priority are the writings of the wisdom literature. Wisdom literature draws as much or more from experience as from the revealed word of God. The writings range from the Proverbs explaining why things that work out the way they do to the book of Job that deals with the experience of things not working out the way that they should. And between are books like Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Lamentations, and Jonah. Now, the proof that my seminary placed the writings in third position was the course requirements. There were at least four required Bible courses at seminary when I went there, and not one of them covered the writings except in an introductory way. That was okay with me because I wasn't all that interested in studying the wisdom writings. I wanted to focus on the good stuff, the important stuff, the first priority stuff. Well, my attitude toward the wisdom writings has improved considerably since seminary. Scholars like Walter Brueggemann and Sam Ballantyne helped me better understand and appreciate these books, and now Peter Enns has helped me even more. In fact, Enns makes this amazing claim about the whole Bible. He has no problem with the traditional way of dividing up the Old Testament, but he says that properly understood, the whole Bible is about the way of wisdom. None of it is an instruction manual. All of it is a record of a journey, the record of a community's conversation about discerning what it means to know and follow a mysterious God in a new time and place. Enns begins by pointing out the problems in thinking that the Torah, with its commands and rules, is a reference book about what to do today. 
An honest read of the Torah shows that its five books were written for a different day and time and for different audiences. We don't sacrifice animals. There is no temple now in Jerusalem at which those animals are to be sacrificed. And in that temple, there is no holy of holies to pull the roped high priest out of in case he has a stroke. The antiquity of the Bible is a problem. Or maybe it's a virtue. That's what Peter Enns thinks. He thinks that if the Bible was presented as a book only to be memorized and not interpreted, it would have been abandoned long ago. It's a virtue that the Bible is ancient. To explain his thinking, he pulls a switch. Instead of using the Torah as the baseline on which to explain the writings, as was done in seminary when I studied there, he asked his readers at least for a little while to try letting the wisdom literature be the baseline for understanding the Torah. He's not saying that's the only way to go. He says they should constantly be in conversation back and forth. And he would say also, for a while, let it be the baseline for understanding the prophets. And he begins with Proverbs. And Proverbs begins with the verses that I read as our scripture lesson. I'll give you an idea of how little this book, like some other wisdom writings, have been neglected, have been neglected by me. Proverbs is a long book, 31 chapters long. Today's sermon reaches a benchmark in that I have finally hit double figures. This is my 10th sermon on a passage from Proverbs, and I'm approaching a thousand sermons. I have written more sermons on the parable of the prodigal son on the creation of the world, I could go on. I've written more sermons on passages like that than I have on the entire book of Proverbs. I could justify why those passages got so much attention, but I really can't justify why only 10 sermons have been preached from this book. I know I'm getting off track. Telling you all that is like reading some of the footnotes in Peter N's book. It's a little too focused on myself like his footnote explaining that he's a six on the Enneagram scale, someone who craves structure to alleviate fears, just like Richard Nixon, Mike Tyson, Alex Jones, Rush Limbaugh, and Frodo Baggins. Anyway, Proverbs begins by informing the reader, or perhaps better expressed, the student, that what follows in the book is going to provide wisdom, insight, and instruction. And that it does. And some of the Proverbs make immediate sense even in our day. Here are a few, and forgive my paraphrases. A gentle response will calm down others, but harsh words will stir the pot. Where there is no vision, the people perish. You've all heard that one. The one who watches what he says avoids a lot of trouble. Better is a morsel eaten in silence than a feast where everybody is fussing. Even a fool can be thought wise if he'll just keep his mouth shut. A good stuff. But not all the Proverbs make immediate sense, and the prologue explains why. The targeted audience are young people who need instruction. It says certainly those who are older can benefit from being reminded of what is on the pages, but the book is primarily for young people. Young men, actually, 
privileged men who will have access to the halls of power and access to resources. From the perspective of Proverbs, it's very important that these young men not become jerks, which young men with power, privilege, and resources can do sometimes. Don't know if you've noticed. So the book offers guidance on how to behave in the home, how to rate elders so as to know which ones to listen to, how to rate women so as to know which ones are worth marrying, how to discipline and raise children, and how to prosper while remembering to serve the cause of justice and help those in need. A different audience than most of us, young men. A different time for all of us, the time of the Davidic dynasty. And a different context than the one we live in, a royal court. So we got to take on some responsibility in reading Proverbs. We have to do some thinking on our own to see the connection, the relevance to our lives. But even if we could ignore the difference in time, the setting, and the intended audience, you know what? We, we still would have difficulty treating the book as an instructional manual because the Proverbs contradict themselves sometimes in speaking to its audience, its time, and its context. For instance, for those of us who are shocked at how rude, condescending, insulting, passive-aggressive posts on social media can be and are tempted to respond to those posts, we would get opposite advice from two Proverbs that sit side by side. Chapter 26, verse 4, do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. Chapter 26, verse 5, answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. So, what do I do when I read that post of someone saying something outrageous, rude, and unfair on social media? Do I heed the advice of verse 5, respond and get into it, get down on their level, out-snark the snark, demean the demeanor, so what is said is not allowed to stand, and then maybe be seen as a troll trolling the trolls? Or do I heed verse 4, remain above it all, and let the smart Alex think that they are actually smart? The idiots think that they are wise. The bullies think that they have won. I guess the answer is it depends. The pairing of the verses remind us that there is not always just one answer. Read the situation. Use your imagination. Weigh the cost and the advantages. What is the most loving thing to do? What would Jesus do? What would grandma do? Maybe consider the one speaking and decide if any good will come out of engaging. Or if your desire to respond is just ego-driven and your desire to win. Hmm. I wrote it. It's really good. Do I hit post? Forgive me another footnote that is off the tracks and about me, but I'm more likely to go with verse 5 and respond when I'm in the same room with a person 
When it comes to social media, where what you say can be reposted and live forever in the cloud and shared with someone you did not mean to insult, verse 4 is my guiding light, not verse 5. I stay out of it. But you be you. This is only one example of what seems to be contradictory advice in the book of Proverbs, and there are many. But I was prepared in seminary to expect these contradictions when they come out of wisdom literature. I mean, that's how wisdom literature works. You read the room, you use common sense. While the fear of the Lord may be the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs and other books of wisdom invite you to take seriously the wisdom of the past, starting with your faith, but also look at the world around you. Draw on your experiences, both good and bad. Use logic, use common sense, and develop an intuition as to what it means to be a person who might prosper in the world and help other people prosper in the world as well. Or at least understand when things go to pot. The book of Proverbs is about all of that. And... To be honest, that is what used to make the book seem less important to me because it it seemed to be less about the revealed word of God and more about being savvy in the world's eyes, even as you try to be a good person who obeys God's will. This is where Enns makes his switch. He says that what is true of a book like Proverbs in particular, and wisdom literature in general, is true about the other two bodies of literature as well. Take the prophets. Hammer your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, says the prophet Joel. I bet if you've heard some version of that, you've heard that verse the other way around. We Christians much prefer what the prophet Micah said when he said the opposite of that. Beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. But both are in the Bible. Both are prophetic sayings. And we are left to consider the situation, read the room, and hopefully for us Christians bring Jesus into the conversation. And it's true of the Torah as well, the Thus Saith the Lord book that contains God's commands that justify both slavery and its abolition justify both keeping women subordinate to men and fully emancipating them, justify violence against one's enemies and condemns violence against one's enemies, justify political power and denounce it, justify wealth and speak of money's evils. Now, in case there are some among you that want to point out that it all changes with the New Testament, that Grace replaces the law that Jesus provides final clarity on what it means to live as God's people. Let me point out that contradictions, ambiguities, and datedness apply to the New Testament as well. Otherwise, none of us would take out a house loan. Slaves would be returned to their masters with the kind reminder that they are to be treated as siblings of Christ. And something called the Jerusalem Collection would be a line item in our church budget. Now, for those who want to ignore Paul and listen only to Jesus, the one who is always right for every time, I'll remind you that Jesus can be contradictory as well. For instance, saying that the law ought to be followed to the T and then bend and break the law given the circumstance or the situation. 
Jesus evidently knows to read the room, consider the situation, and use his intuition. That the Bible is ancient, ambiguous, contradictory, diverse in its viewpoints, and too specific sometimes while being too fuzzy at other times, honestly is why some modern people have rejected the Bible and left the church, especially after some of the Bible's defenders go through extraordinary and convoluted efforts to explain away what is obviously there. But not Peter ends. He says that the Bible's glory is that it's ancient, ambiguous, and diverse. These are the very reasons that the Bible continues to remain vital and relevant and, yes, authoritative, even as the world constantly keeps changing around us. For the Bible was never what we try to make it out to be sometimes an instruction manual of an odd sort, a manual that never needs to be revised. The Bible is, in its entirety, from stem to stern, a book about the way of wisdom. It is a book about moral discernment as people in their own circumstances strive to understand what it means to be a people who are devoted to God and who walk in the ways of justice and mercy and peace. If we want a faith that is truly vibrant and active, in says, we have to get used to the fact that God's presence comes to us not when we find the right passage, but when we embrace with courage and anticipation the way of wisdom. The Bible shows us how to do that with its different perspectives, with its debates about God's will for new times and situations. The Bible embraces what has been passed on to us, like the commandments, but also considers what experience and reason have to offer. The Bible is closed sometimes to the insights of people outside the faith because their ideas are dangerous, and the Bible is open sometimes to the insights of people outside the faith because their ideas are helpful. Through it all, the Bible remains an ongoing reconsideration of what it means to avoid being jerks and being good followers of God and of God in Christ. So why did I feel the need to preach this sermon? My primary reason was not to preach about interpreting the Bible, though that in itself is a very good reason to preach a sermon. I mean, we live on a world we know to be round. We pump oil that comes of dinosaurs that scientists say roamed the earth for 165 million years. And it's good that we be liberated from the notion that we have to defend ancient beliefs and worldviews as modern-day facts. We're also dealing with issues today of which there was no notion in Scripture, in the time of Scripture. Global warming? and the possibility of nuclear war, sexual orientation, abortion as a medical possibility, the potential of vaccines, and the possibility that mandated practices of worship might need to be put on pause during a pandemic. Who knew? We have to get over the notion 
that all these issues have only one response that can be called biblical. Keeping the biblical witness in mind, we need to listen to the conversation within the Bible, the conversation within the church since then, and the conversation of the world since then, including the insights of science, other perspectives, experience, and common horse sense. Call all that I just said as a long footnote because that is not the primary reason I wrote this sermon. The primary reason I wrote this sermon is the same reason I have written a number of sermons the past few years, why I helped lead classes such as The Open Mind and The Bible in Black and White, why I have written a number of pastor's letters and notes for the second sheet. These are polarized times where silos have developed where often we're made to feel there is only one way to understand, talk about, and take stand on issues. A world where the Bible is proof text or ignored completely. And where people are encouraged to turn a deaf ear to facts, science, common sense, and ignore the good old-fashioned question of what is practical and possible over what is ideal but impossible. Talk about a prologue. Here it is. My primary reason for writing this sermon is that I want to encourage all of us to be a people of faith who pursue the way of wisdom in a world that is just like the Bible, a world that is out of date and needs to be updated, that is confusing and is diverse. I want us to remember the neglected member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and develop an intuition as to how to be open and loving even with those with whom we do not always agree. And I want us to develop this intuition in a biblical way. Peter Enns helps us see that the Bible is the opposite of what so much of media is today, both liberal and conservative. So much of media today is one-sided and way too certain of itself, reflecting the personality of thus saith. The Bible can illustrate a way of wisdom that will help us listen to each other, compromise, and settle on agreements on how we are to live agreements that are never going to be perfect, that are bound to change and will have to change. The Bible will help us out in this. But only if we allow the Bible to be itself a role model of conversation and debate about what it means right now to obey God who is mysterious and to love others who are sometimes frustrating. Second Presbyterian. Finding Direction by Following Jesus.